Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. It's good to be with you here in person uh, in Pepper Pike and also those of you worshiping with us online who just uh, went in the dark. Um, There I am. See, we do that to prove that I glow in the dark. I'm ordained. Okay. Um, We're glad to be together in our uh, teaching series that we've been working on. Um, Questions that Jesus asked. We're going to jump right into that. Uh, I did want to do a little bit of housekeeping. Um, There we go. Uh, That, as as Leilani shared, one of our Connection pastors, Easter, uh, we've been watching our in-person attendance, and it keeps to bump up, bump up, bump up. So we want to, on that Sunday, offer two worship times for Mosaic to make sure we don't overrun any one of our services. So take your choice. You want to come at 10, you want to come at 11.15. I've talked to Dre, I've talked to the worship team. I'm probably going to stink at it today, but on Easter, I'll get better. We're going to really streamline our services to be an hour those Sundays. So, you know, we, we want to celebrate our Lord, but we also want to accommodate as many folk as we can. Uh, we do have an upper lot in the back. That's where we and the staff park each week. Easter might be a good day to do that, or if you see our attendance going up, um, you, you walk right down the upper lot, and you're right here into our main lobby, um, and that's an optional way for us to receive more and more friends. So pay attention. Next week, I am so excited. Um, I really am. I'm bringing, Eric Stensland is coming. Um, he's a photojournalist, a nature f- photographer from the Rocky Mountains. He is an author. Um, this man has an incredible testimony. I tell you, in 2023, when I, you guys got tired of hearing about how I was hitting the wall, I, I was so beaten, so battered. When I went out to Colorado for my son's uh, wedding, went up and spent a couple restorative days. It was only two days, but it was amazing just getting away, getting up in the mountains, how it began to restore me. And I came across these books. The first one is Whispers in the Wilderness, Eric's book. And at the beginning, um, I saw him say, look, don't just read through this thing. Marinate on a picture a day, okay? So one picture, one day, and a little reflection. And I did that for 168 days, 168 photographs. I came home from Boulder. I would go on my back porch. I would look at the picture in the morning over my coffee I would read the devotion that he has, trying to seek to get us back to the inner life, back to the inner voice. Eric was, you're going to be amazed by this couple that's coming in. He, was the, he and his wife are the point people for one of the greatest humanitarian crises in the world during the Kosovo War. And like so many of us in ministry, he flat out burned out. And after that, he allowed God to restore him through nature, through reflecting, and, you know, for, for a while there, I was getting the habit of, oh, that's a tree. Oh, that's my granddaughter. Oh, that's a crowd of people. Oh, that's a sunset. Not after reading Eric. I get arrested by these things now, and I say, God, what are you showing me? What are you showing me? 
And so I'm in his second book now. This one's uh, a 200 photographs. So by the time I'm done this, I'm going to spend a year with this brother each and every morning, allowing him to minister. So my wife said to him, I said to me, when it was becoming so restorative for me, she said, you need to reach out to this guy. So I did. And I, we connected. And then he said, he went online and they listened to like five of our services and my sermons. And he said, my wife said to me, you need to go meet this guy. So we're all coming together and he's going to really give us a journey into seeing better. Beautiful pictures we'll have all through our lobbies that day. You'll have a chance to purchase his books. you have a chance to meet him. I do hope you might consider coming to brunch. We've got a great brunch. Luna uh, Bakery down the street is catering it. It's only $15. If $15 gets in the way, just tell us you're coming. We're not going to make that, but that's just helping us offset our costs. So it'll be right after Mosaic next week. We'll do a little book signing. We'll go in there, and you'll have a time for some Q&A, some good food, man. If you had Luna's breakfast burritos, they're, they're banging, man. Um, so I, I hope you'll think about doing that. We can fellowship uh, beyond that morning. Again, I, this is why I'm going overboard today a little bit, because I got more message than I have time, and I'm doing all this housekeeping. But I had to share this with you. You know, our mission is to widen the circle by connecting diverse people who share a common brokenness with Jesus. Uh, one of the things you don't know sometimes is we do a lot of teaching. Uh, for years, we were doing labs here where churches would fly in from all over the country, churches that have never seen a church where people are diverse, ethnically, politically, etc. And they come in to learn from us. We've done that for about eight years. We're part of a national teaching church with the Mosaics Movement. And uh, also, one of the things that I spend my time doing, because I'm old, is I coach a lot of younger pastors, and Garfield Church has helped to plant churches. We have a church in Liberia, some of you know about. We helped plant a church in Dayton. There's a mosaic church in Dayton that's blowing up right now, and Garfield was their chartering church and teaching church for them. Uh, back in 2015, we helped a young planter. He came down to Exponential, where I was teaching, um, I haven't started preaching yet, and you guys got my clock, but that's okay. I'll go all day. Um, I, I, I have no idea what he said, but I know it wasn't good. Um, so the, the, it was a church in Painesville. A planter came down. He said, asked me if I would coach him. They wanted to plant a church in the Painesville area, very young. I said, look, there's a lot of planters, a lot of coaches out there. If you seek to plant a Revelation 7-9 church, if just say that we want all people, not some people, Right? Who's your target audience is never a biblical question. Whoever taught pastors that was not being biblical. And so I, I said, if you do that, I'll be glad to coach you. He did. They launched uh, Altered Church in Painesville. Aaron came and preached for us. They launched. They had 192 people show up back in 16. He called me crying. I said, man, that's great. He said, no. He said, what's even greater is it was a third, a third, a third, a third Caucasian, a third African-American, a third Hispanic. He saw the kingdom uh, the pandemic about put them out of business. And Aaron was thinking of leaving ministry, and I got alongside him. And, and even though I was thinking of leaving ministry, I lied and said, hey, everything's great, you know, but we encouraged him. Do you know, we replanted Alder Church. They were at Painesville Harvey High School. They outgrew the daggone thing, and God saw fit to give them a brand-new building. And they're, they're launching <laughs> next week. They're launching next week. Next week, they're launching in their new building, 
we went ahead, uh, we've purchased some baptismal pool, we funded their office, we fund their children's ministry, uh, we sent them all the equipment they need to make sure their launch goes online, about $1,400 worth of cameras, et cetera, and Aaron wanted us to see this, and I think it's an important way for you to see us widen the circle. Good morning, Garfield Memorial Church. My name is Aaron Kyler. I'm the pastor of Altar Church in Painesville, Ohio. And maybe you remember me because back in 2015, I gave my very first big boy sermon at your church. Altered Church launched in 2015, largely with the support of your church. Not only did you let me preach, not only did I get coaching from your pastor, Chip Freed, but your church also provided prayer and even gave us our first baptismal, a baptismal just like yours, and we baptized hundreds of people in those waters. Alter Church, we launched back in 2015. We called it a church for everyone, and we were diverse in every single way. A young church, a beautiful church full of worship and passion, a church that was reaching many people in the community who otherwise would never come to church. But just like probably your church and every other church in America, the pandemic put the brakes on momentum, and we almost didn't survive the pandemic. There were times that I didn't think I could continue as a pastor, but we held on, we kept going. We met at high school, and then we met at the middle school, and then we met at the outdoor Y. We met on the campus of Lake Erie College. We kept moving forward in faithfulness and persistence. And you know what? We're growing again, and God has blessed our church. He's blessed our church with our own building, and I'm telling you, I don't know if you can tell how excited I am about us having our own building, but when you been going from place to place, from high school to middle school, the YMCA to college campus to park and having worship, to have your own space is a huge blessing. So we're so excited. Can we just, can, I, can we show them around real quick? We did like the whole spin thing. Like, can, can you see what we got going on here? Can you see it? Because, because this, this isn't even it. There's classrooms and there's a kitchen. Who knows what we can do in this place? God knows. We are obviously excited about this blessing, but our church doesn't have a ton of resources because we serve a poor community. So do you know how you can help us? Well, first of all, and most importantly, you can pray for us, diligently pray for us, maybe even once a day for a week. I, I know God will move mountains with those prayers. Also, drop us a message, an encouragement. Shoot us a text message or an email. Just let us know that you're behind us and you support us. That means the world. There's also other ways that you can help support Alter Church and your pastor will tell you how you can do that. But please keep us in your prayers and in your hearts because we need the support of God's people. Thank you so much, Garfield Memorial, for always supporting and loving our church. God is going to make a move in our community through this church because of your faithfulness and prayers and love and enduring support for us. So pat yourself on the back, Garfield Memorial. Our church, Alter Church, is an example of you widening the circle. God bless you guys. Have a great Sunday. How about that? Look at God. It's good to know what you're giving support sometimes. It really is. You know, I know you give and you trust us in leadership, but we do not hoard money here. We, we don't stockpile. We basically said whatever is given to us, it is our job to always be a dollar short and to put everything we have into mission and ministry. And so I, I just had to share that with you. Okay, let's jump in now um, into the questions Jesus asked. Last week, we started looking at this. At Garfield, our first core value is safety. We want to be a safe place for people to search. 
We don't grade each other or where we are on the, you know, the eight paths to enlightenment or whatever those other religions talk about. We, we come in and we're at different places spiritually sometimes. We're at different places emotionally. We're as different as, as, as God created differences. Our fingerprints say that never before, never again. And we honor that. Some of us worship like me. I dance around the room and, and shout at the top of my voice. And others, you go into deep, deep reflective prayer. And, and which one is right? Jesus says, yeah. Yeah, man. It's good. And so we want to be a safe place to search. We want to be a safe place to think. I talked about that last week. Don't buy into preachers that tell you to check your brains in at the door. And to just swallow hook, line, and sinker. You know, God said it, that settles it. Jesus says, think and ask and seek and knock. And Jesus comes to us with questions. We talked about that last week. 305 questions. There's not that many words of Jesus preserved in the Gospels. And and 305 of them were questions I shared last week. They're never close-ended questions. They're not, you know, things you can say yes or no or fine. They're open-ended. They're counseling questions because how many knows he's a wonderful counselor? And he asks these questions to pull out of us and to seek and to search and to find. And today we have this question, this interesting question that, that uh, Leilani read for us. I paraphrased it this way. It's Mark chapter 2, verse 8. Jesus is basically saying, why are you thinking these things about me? How he literally asked it in Mark is he said, why do you raise such questions in your heart? And the questions they were raising were, who is this guy? Who is this God? What's he all about? And frankly, when Jesus showed up, everybody was happy. There was a lot of praising, right? And by the time he keeps showing who he is, who he really is, who God is, people get confused. People get shocked. And the religious leaders get murderously angry. And I want to look at these reactions that we have in this story. But before I do, this question is so important. And I've been trying to look at what's the culture saying? What's the world around us saying? What are some of us saying? What do we think about God? What do you think about when you think about God? A.W. Tozer once said that uh, what you... I'm trying. Did I turn off? No. Oh, there it is. Um, What comes into your minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, right? What we think about God really, really matters. So I, I, I saw a survey that was done after the pandemic, and there was a group asking these questions. What do you think about God? It was very Western-based. It wasn't Africa, Asia, South America. It was Western Europe. It was North America. But they went through and began to say, what do you think about God? And they had a wide range of people Um, Some claimed to be Christian. Some said they were agnostic. Some said they were nothing in particular. That's the group that's growing the fastest in our country, you may know. It was interesting when they were asked, what do you think about God? Either you could say it or you could draw a picture. I just thought it'd be good for you to hear a little bit what the culture's saying out there. So a 34-year-old Christian man in the UK, he said, every time I picture God, I think of this massive person with this huge great beard. A 53-year-old Christian woman in Germany said, I think of a higher power. And by that, I mean something along the lines of energy. More like a guardian angel. To me, God is also not just one, but several. When I pray, I pray to my guardian angels that surround me rather than praying directly to God. 
Somebody has said that they're nothing in particular, a 35-year-old man here in the States, said the characteristics of God are moss on a crisp Sunday morning in a park under your feet. And there's nobody else around. It's gorgeous. I'm going to ask Eric about that one last week. I did hear Jesus say, I am the vine. Maybe he said, I am the moss. I, I don't know. I don't know. For me, it's kindness as a Christian man in Spain. Goodness in the broadest sense of the word, good. And then as I'm very fond of my family, I think it's a super father. He's there when you need it. 34-year-old man said, it's the concept of a panoramic view. 20-year-old agnostic said, I tried to draw God. I didn't really know how to draw it because I guess my idea would be that God is outside matter, space, and time. So it's not a physical thing, like people were saying. So I just did a squiggle. I, I had to Google squiggle. Do you know there's such a thing? Squiggle, I don't know what it is, but it's there. it kind of looks like the Big Bang, I guess. 30-year-old agnostic man said, I wrote down him or her in heaven. I drew a stylistic picture, not strictly traditional. When I was done, it looked a little like Whoopi Goldberg. Another woman, uh, nothing in particular. I'm very science. I don't necessarily think all Christians genuinely believe there's a man sitting in the clouds in the sky that created the planet. An atheist said, a 26-year-old, of course people should be able to believe in what they want. But for me, it just doesn't exist. For me, it's not logical. In my head, it's just not logical. I haven't experienced anything. Maybe if I did experience something, then I would see it. But one can always change. Several, nothing in particular, or several of, you know, um, younger people when asked, what do you think about God? They said, nothing in particular. And the final one just kind of got me a little bit. There's a woman in France, a Christian, 32 years old. I'd really love to believe. I see how much it helps many people. I can see the help that it can bring. Unfortunately, it just hasn't done that for me. And so for me, God is just a story. Christian Smith wrote a book called Soul Searching. And in the book, he summarized perceptions of God that he felt are prevalent in the church and in contemporary culture in America. Here's what he wrote. He said, many and most young evangelicals believe in what could best be described as a, quote, moral therapeutic deism. We could also call this viewpoint the Santa Claus God. Moral implies that God wants us to be nice. He rewards the good and withholds from the naughty. Therapeutic means God just wants us to be happy. And deism means that God is distant and not involved in our daily lives. God may get involved occasionally, but on the whole, God functions like an idea, not a personal being actively present in our world. This is the version of God, Smith writes, that's prevalent in our culture and in our churches often without realizing it. Oh, good Lord, help me. My wife, Trey, rescue me. Often, often, thank you. I'm like Dumbo with this magic feather. I can't fly. (laughs) Often without realizing it, every culture quietly molds and shapes our views of God, but we can't grow in our relationship with God when we insist on relating to God as we think God should That's why our surrender to God as God is 
as revealed to us in the scriptures and the Bible is so important. Otherwise, watch this, we will continue to have a God of our own imaginations. And embarrassingly, our American God is an obese, jolly toy maker who works one day a year. That's, what are you saying about me? So the story of Mark gives us a story about who God is. And Jesus is challenging him. You've got all these ideas in your head about who I am, a squiggle, Whoopi Goldberg, moss on your shoes, energy, an idea, Santa Claus. But you don't know me. So I read Isaiah, read the prophets. They, they're yearning. And the, Isaiah says, have you ever heard such a thing? He said, even farm animals, the oxen and the sheep know who their master is, but my people don't know me. Jeremiah said, what is it that you find worthless in me, that you chased after worthless things and became yourself worthless? Micah says, God speaking to us with, what did you grow weary of me? When did I become boring to you? Just an idea right? And so we see Jesus showing up. Now, this is Mark's gospel. He's the earliest gospel writer. He's writing down testimonies now when many of the first eyewitnesses are dying off. And so the gospels were written so that we would have a record of what Jesus really did, what he really said. And at this point in the story, things begin to become unsettled. Everybody's not happy anymore. Now people are confused. Now people are are shocked and even as a religious leader's angry. I had a seminary professor told me, if you ever read a Bible story like this, do it this way. Read it from perspectives of somebody in the story. So the woman dragged out, caught in adultery. Of course, they don't penalize the man. It's the same way today. You know, let's stone her. She committed this crime. Read that through the eyes of that woman. Drug out, humiliated, unjust, and read that story. Do you see it? Now go back in. Read it this time from the perspective of those who were holding the rocks. Have you ever held rocks? Have you ever thrown judgment somebody's way? Read it that way. Now go back in and read it through the eyes of Jesus. Do you hear how rich that is? I practice that in my reading. So I'm going to do today three perspectives from two individuals in the story and for us reading the story. Seeing the story through the eyes of the man on the mat. Okay, we're going to start there. What shocked and confused him? Seeing through the eyes of the readers, all of us today and through the years who've read this story, and to be honest, a lot of people have been confused and shocked by it. I'll tell you why. Then thirdly, through the eyes of the religious leaders who are utterly shocked and even murderously angry. So let's start with that. First, the confusion and shock of the man on the mat. The man said, son, your sins are forgiven. We're going to read that line three ways. Now, first off, our translation this morning said, child, your sins are forgiven. That's really not a good translation. I'll tell you why. I really appreciate inclusive language. I need it. When people say to me, well, God loved man, I go, and women? Like, if, if people say man and they mean men and women, I'm confused. I'm sorry. I'm an, I, like, you need to help me. But in this case, it isn't child, it's son. And if it had been a woman, he would have said daughter. He is getting extremely personal. Son, your sins are forgiven. Next one, we're going to go, your sins are forgiven. And the last one, your sins are forgiven. Here's the man on the mat, right? Here's a person who will stop at nothing to get to Jesus, right? 
Can you imagine that? They cut a hole in the roof. Can you imagine if that happened this morning? Suddenly a crane starts to lower. I had this happen to me, I thought, gosh, it was several years ago. It was pre-COVID. Um, in the sanctuary during our heritage worship, a bird flew in from outside in the summer and got into our sanctuary and started to fly around. And, you know, I stopped. I'm like, okay, it's a bird. We've seen it before. And I tried to keep preaching. And all people heard from me that day was blah, 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 blah. I should have just shut up because I was preaching to people that were going. <laughs> Satan can distract us so easy. All he's got to do is send a bee into a picnic and we could be, Billy Graham could be there and we wouldn't hear a thing. We are so easily distracted. Can you imagine if the roof went open this morning? I couldn't preach through that. Y'all be, I would be too, right? Why is he so desperate to get to Jesus? Why is he so desperate to get to Jesus? Somebody tell me right now, why was he so desperate to get to Jesus? To be healed. He's got a problem, right? He's paralyzed. And everybody seems to know it, except Jesus, right? Here he comes, down, down this whole situation. And Jesus doesn't walk over to him and say, be healed. He walks over and says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if this guy was from Cleveland, he would say, um, Jesus, like, that's very nice. Thank you for that. I didn't need a devotional. I'm here for a particular reason, and it seems like everybody in Cleveland, Ohio knows why I'm here except you, right? He said, I have a more immediate problem than having my sins forgiven, and Jesus says, no, you don't. That's shocking. That's confusing. Jesus is saying, you think this is the main problem in your life, and it's not. I know that you're suffering, and I'm going to deal with that. I know that things have happened to you that aren't your fault, and I'm going to deal with that. But there's something deeper going on. You see, he, he's saying, you know, if I heal you right now, you're going to get euphoric because you've been saying all along, hey, if I just get that, and every one of us in this room is doing it, including me, if I could just get that, if I could just get that situation, just get that relationship, just get that thing, then I'd be okay then I'd be happy, then I'd be secure, then I, I'd be safe. And Jesus said, I can give it to you, and you're going to say, oh, I'll never complain again. Everything will be great, and I'm going to tell you, give it three months. Give it three months. Claudia Heimel is a writer in New York, and I, um, I'm sorry, Cynthia Heimel, and she was a chic writer. She's uh, no longer living, but I remember back in the 90s, I think I read an article, we were in New York, and she was kind of chic, in the Broadway scene, and uh, she would go to the upscale bars and restaurants, and she was a who's who writer. And she talked about meeting um, uh, struggling actors and actresses, you know, waiting tables, tending bars. And uh, she knew three that had actually made it. If I can just get famous, man, I'll have it. And she wrote something very interesting. She said when they were just struggling actors like the rest of us, they were kind of normal people. But when they got what they always dreamed for, they became awful. And here's what she wrote. She says, I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. You see, they wanted fame. They worked. They pushed. The morning after each one of them became famous, however, they wanted to take an overdose. 
Because that giant thing they were striving for, that thing that was going to make everything okay, that thing that was going to make their life bearable, that thing that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness has happened, and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. See, all of us have something that if I just get that, then I'll be happy. If I can just get that, then I'll, I'll feel safe. I'll, I'll be okay. Do you realize when you talk that way, you're saying, if I can get that, that will save me. So we're going to a Santa Claus God, Jesus, and saying, if you could just give me my Savior, I'd be okay. We're trying to use him to get our saviors. And Jesus said, I, I don't want to give you your saviors that are going to leave you empty and hollow. I want to give you me, the only savior, right? The, the true savior that if you get me, I'll fulfill you. And if you fail me, I'll forgive you. And there's no savior that we can find in these earthly containers that can give that to us but him. Every one of us is building our identity on something. And Jesus said, if it's not me, it's going to fail you. It's going to leave you. It's not just about being healed of this or getting, you know, this achievement or getting that perfect relationship or whatever. You've got to get me. I've got to be it. See, we think the biggest problem we have when we go to God and we go to church is we want God to give us our saviors. And Jesus said, I am your savior right? Uh, you've got a bigger problem than that. Let, let, me, let me share this. I have to. I'll try to be quicker on my final two. But um, this is very personal for me. Uh, you ever read the Narnia Chronicles, you know, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? I know they're old. C.S. Lewis, all the various chronicles. I love those books. Um, Lewis basically took the gospel and Aslan the lion, right, you know, is Jesus Christ. He's the Christ figure. And he tried to share the gospels in ways that all of us in our elementary ways can understand it, where children can understand it. Actually, my favorite character in all the Chronicles comes from the third Narnia Chronicles. It's called The, uh, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Anybody out there saw it or read it? Few. It's not the most common one. But there's a character in that story. His name is Eustace. Eustace is a very cantankerous 13-year-old boy. Nobody likes him. He doesn't like anybody. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in Narnia. He's very cynical. He complains all the time. But as the children are swooped back up into Narnia, he gets caught up in it, and he ends up on this boat in Narnia, this ship, and he's miserable. He's in a land he doesn't believe in, doing who knows what. And when the ship stops on an island, if you know the story, Eustace gets off, and he goes into a cave. And in the cave, he finds this massive, glorious treasure. Gold beyond your imagination, rubies and diamonds and, and emeralds. And, and Eustace goes, now I have it. Now I'm going to be rich beyond means. And all the people that laughed at me, all the people that talked down to me, I'm going to laugh at them and I'm going to talk down to them. And he falls asleep on this treasure. And if you know the story, what he doesn't know is it's the treasure of a dragon. And as he sleeps on the gold and he goes to sleep with greedy and dragony thoughts, when he wakes up, he finds out that he's been turned into a dragon. And he's hideous and he's massive and, 
and he's alone and he doesn't know what's happening. He tries to fly back to the ship, but they're frightened of him and they shoot spears at him. And now he realizes, I'm not going to have anybody. I'm going to be totally alone. I'm going to be hideous forever. I'm going to be stuck here on this island. And he is absolutely in utter depression and despair. And Aslan, the lion, Jesus shows up. And he takes him by a clear pool of water. And he says to him, undress now. And Eustace goes, oh, that's it, undress. Maybe if I can get off this dragony skin. And so he gnaws and he claws and he's tearing off the skin. And he's amazed he's able to get the dragon skin off. And he throws it on the ground. But it's to his disbelief, he's still a dragon. There was another dragon skin beneath that. So he does it again. He's desperate and he's clawing. And he tears all that dragon skin off. And he throws it down. But there's more dragon skin. And he does it a third time. And he throws it down. And he's still a dragon. And Aslan the lion says... You're going to have to let me do it. And just hear these words of Eustace in the book. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So the very first tear he made went so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I have ever felt while he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I had thought I had done it myself before the other three times, although that hadn't hurt. There it was lying in the grass, ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And then he threw me in the pool. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And I saw I had finally become a boy again. That's my story, friends. That's my story. You know, there was a day Jesus came into my life and started to undress me. I used to be a little boy. I kind of become a dragon. And he ripped it off and it didn't feel very good. But he turned me into a boy again. And he's not undone dressing me, by the way. I'm sorry. He's not done. I've learned through the years, there's a lot of layers down there, amen? And his claws are merciful claws. When Peter preached, people were cut to the heart, but it wasn't the sword of a thief. It was a scalpel of a surgeon. And he continues to undress me. And I'll tell you, at this point in my life, I don't go to him to get things anymore. I go to him to get him. And I don't know, but those of you who have met the real Jesus, not the Santa Claus Jesus, not the personal assistant Jesus, not the genie in the bottle Jesus, not the cardboard cutout of yourself Jesus so you can worship yourself daily, but the real Jesus, it's hard to get through that story without weeping. Quit trying to use me to get your Savior, says our Lord, and let me be your Savior. Let me get to the last two quickly. There's a challenge for all of us and a shock, readers today and readers then. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Present tense. Present tense. Not your sins will be forgiven. Not here's five steps to the blessing that I want you to study and then come back and see if you pass the test. Something has shocked readers through the years with this. You know why? Jesus said, you're forgiven before the man ever asks for it. Before he ever repents. 
What's going on? Have you ever read the rest of scripture? People, uh, Bartimaeus, Jesus, uh, son of David, have mercy on me. People ask. We're called to repent, right? Not this guy. He's not looking for forgiveness. He's looking for help to a problem. He's desperate. And do you know God is so eager to love us in Jesus Christ? Yes, he has claws. Yes, he's a real, real savior. But he is aggressive with his grace. This man, just the impulse that he's desperate enough. Do you know you just have to ache in his direction? You just have to start taking what's really been keeping you up at night and don't just go to a preacher or just don't go to a church, but go to him and say, God, I don't know how to believe, but help my unbelief. And you'll find out that he is a lion. You'll find out one who's been chasing for you before you ever look for him. One who's been hunting you down. Jesus is so aggressive with his grace, so relentless and reckless with his love, that just on the impulse of this man's desperate heart, he's eager to give it to him. And he never asks for it. Oh, there's a blessed assurance in that, friends. That does our, our Lord and Savior have claws? Yeah. Is he going to undress us and make us face, face the beasts in our basement? Yeah. But he is a God that sees all there is to see about us and pursues us rent, relentlessly. When Eric comes here next week, he's going to show us God even pursues us from nature, right? Psalm 19 says the heavens are telling the glory of God. His creation is speaking his handiwork. And I'm going to tell you, God will chase you down in sunsets. He'll chase you through a close friend. He'll chase you through the innocence of a child. He will chase you through a sermon or a song. He will feed us more ways to reach you than you have ways to reject him. He is persistent. He is absolute. He is unconditional. He is relentless until he brings his children home. That's why I love the story of the prodigal son. Here's this boy went off in the distance. He had squandered everything. He had flat out blown it. How many of you know when you blow it, you start rehearsing your prayers? Before I go see God, I'm going to polish this thing up a little bit. Before I go home and see mom and dad, I'm going to have a decent excuse, right? Before I crawl back into my friendship circle, when I have betrayed him, I'm going to have a treatise. And what did that boy do? He rehearsed. Oh, Father, I have sinned before heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Right? Can't you imagine this kid coming back all the way just on the bus stop? Oh, Father, I see. You know, he's rehearsing this thing, man. I got to have a good prayer when I get home or dad is going to kick my tail, right? He's going to keep the no vacancy sign on the door. And when that boy just got even close, God jumped off the porch and ran to meet him and threw his arms around him and kissed him, which was the act of forgiveness before he ever lifted the prayer. You don't understand how relentless God is to reach us. Can you imagine that boy? He's being forgiven. Oh, Father, I'm not worthy. To be. Hey, bring a robe. Bring the ring. My son is home. I'm no longer worthy to be such your son. Hey, get the fatted calf. We're gonna... Oh, treat me as I... Shut up, kid! You were lost and now you're found. You're dead and now you're alive. Come on in to the party together. You need to understand. See, this ticks some people off. They don't deserve it that easy. I don't deserve it that easy. I love what Marindale Engel said. She said, I have a point of view. You have a point of view. God has view. 
How else can you explain the Savior of the world on the cross saying to people who are murdering him, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Let me, let me rattle through the last one. There's a confusion, a shock, and the anger of the religious leaders, right? Because he said, son, your sins are forgiven. This is blasphemy. They're right. They said no one can, can sin, you know, forgive sins but God alone. That's absolutely correct. And do you realize the claim that Jesus is making when he does this? See, what, what authority does he have to forgive sins? Let me pick up my buddy Dre down here since he picked up my remote. No, because we do ministry together. Let's say it's Pastor Terry and Pastor Dre and Pastor Chip, and we go into a bar to get, well, they wouldn't go into a bar. They're too holy. We go into a Starbucks together, right? And um, I just get mad, and I just wall off and smack Dre in the face. And Pastor Terry intervenes and goes, Dre, it's okay. All is forgiven. There's been no injustice here. It's okay. Chip's forgiven. You're forgiven. Dre's going to go, wait a minute, Pastor Terry. You didn't get hit. That brother hit me. It's my job to forgive. And he'd be right, right? Why is Jesus stepping in and saying it's his job to forgive? Because he's saying every sin that you have ever done in your life has been against me. Every injustice you've ever committed has been against me. Every harsh word that you've ever said has been against me. Paul found that out, right, when he's riding into Tarsus and he got knocked off his horse and he heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, Paul said, I don't even know who you are. Jesus said, you will. Right? He, he's saying that only your creator could say these words. I created you for a purpose, and every time you violate that purpose and stray from that path, you are sinning against me. And he asked that question. I love this question. I'm going to close here. He says, what's it hard? You know, because people are like, oh, forgive. He said, what's harder to do? Forgive, say your sins are forgiven, or to say take up your mat and walk? Now, for years and years, I thought it was take up your mat and walk, right? Because they don't even believe him until he heals the guy. But I got to thinking about it. Is it easier for Jesus to heal your body or forgive your sins? See, he had the cross in view. He knew the minute he healed this man, he was getting himself closer to his death. As he was teaching this man to dance again, he knew that he would have to die. And Jesus is saying, the price that I paid for you is immeasurable. It's harder for me to forgive your sins than heal your body, but I'm going anyway. And Jesus looked at that crowd that was there do you know that, friends? Half of them were trying to use him to get their own little saviors. Half of them were trying to kill them, and he forgave them all. We've never seen a God like this. We've never heard of a God like this that could see us down to the depths of our bottom, that can use his claws to reveal to us our true brokenness, but be relentless with his love and forgive us anyways. That should be the claw that tears at your heart. Is there a hardness of God? Yeah. But as one theologian said, it's kinder than the softness of any man or any woman on earth. The hardness of Jesus will be kinder than any soft savior you can find in your life. The thing he does to wake you up, the way he goes deep and shocks you to really change are his claws of saying, I love you. And I'm going to die for you. So what do you think about God today, friends? I'm done. What do you think? 
Does this God, this Jesus, does he shock you? Does he confuse you? Does he sometimes make you a little angry? Does he bring you peace? Does he make you pace the floor? Does he disagree with you? Good! Now you met a living Savior, not an obese toy maker who shows up once a year or a genie in the bottle or a personal assistant. N.T. Wright's a great theologian. They said, what will you tell your children on your deathbed? He said, that's easy. I'll tell them, look at Jesus. And here's what he wrote. The person who walks out of the pages of the gospel, the person who walks out of the pages this morning of this story, to meet us is central and irreplaceable. He is always a surprise. We never have Jesus in our pockets. He's always coming at us from different angles. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus and go on looking until you're not just a spectator anymore, but you're part of the drama that has him as a central character. We're going to take a moment for, we've been doing Salem moments. We're going to do those clear up to Easter. If you're with us online, I, I hope you'll take a moment too. If worship's over for you, that's, that's okay. But we want to really ground ourselves for a few minutes. Selah is what they shouted during the Psalms to say, stop and think about what you've just heard. Some of you needed that challenge today. You need more than what you thought you needed. There's something deeper than if I only had this. And Jesus is wooing you. Some of you need to know how aggressive he is with his grace. And some of you need to know that he's seen. You know, I, I'm going to ask our House of Prayer people to come up to the walls. These are trained prayer partners. Um, I don't know about you, but when God did his claws and undressed me and threw me in the pool and made me a boy again, and I hope some of you will consider baptism or reaffirmation or share with others. It's my favorite Sundays here. I went in that pool. I know what that was like, but you know what? I found out God forgave me. You know what the hardest thing for me to do? Hard was to forgive myself. I had a pastor say, look in the mirror every day and say, Chip, I love you. Chip, I forgive you. It took me four months before I could say those words. So maybe you've understood God's forgiven you. Maybe you're having trouble forgiving yourself, forgiving somebody else. Come up to a prayer wall with these guys. They're just going to anoint you on oil and say, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. I need to hear that. You need to hear that. Let's just do a couple minutes of reflection, and then we'll close out in prayer and one more song.